Open your Bibles again, if you would, to the book of Joshua chapter 3. And I just got to kind of be honest with you, I'm a little bit concerned, actually a lot concerned, because the older my kids get, um, the more they're becoming like me. And I'm very, very nervous about that. And one of the ways that they're becoming like me, fortunately, they're not balding yet, but um, uh, the, one of the ways that they're becoming more like me is um, that I can see that uh, they get very, very excited about dates and uh, occasions that are in the future. What I mean by that is they can barely stand themselves when they know that Christmas and their birthday is six months away. They can't stand it. It's like as soon as they have their birthday or Christmas is over, they say, well, how long till Christmas or how long to my birthday? And I used to do that all the time, and I used to wear my parents out. And, uh, and I would sit there, and I would, they would say, it's six months. I'm like, is that a long time? And they said, yes, it's a long time. I'm like, oh, the next week. Are we, are we any closer? Yes, we're closer. Is it a long time? Yes. And I would just wear them out with this kind of stuff. And the closer that we got, the worse I became because the more frequent I would ask, the more excited I would get, the more sleep I would end up losing. And I would literally get my, myself sick before we would go on a trip. And I'm finding my kids doing the same exact thing because they have this great anticipation and expectation of this coming day. They just know it's going to be awesome. Now, I can't help but to think that that's a little bit or maybe a lot of bit of what God's people were going through here in the book of Joshua. Because today in chapter 3 and chapter 4, we're going to see them for the very first time in a very long time actually enter into the promised land, into the place of God's rest. And for many of them, this is all they've ever known. They've been counting down the years to this day. Because the majority of the people that enter in were actually uh, born in the wilderness. During the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they were born there. And as soon as they were old enough to talk, of course, everybody kept saying, hey, look, there's 34 more years until we enter the promised land. Then 33 more years. So their whole life has been counting down to this one event inside of their life. Now, there's two of them, Joshua and Caleb, that have actually been looking forward to it much longer than the rest because they're the only two surviving people who had actually made their way out of Egypt, and now they're about to go into the promised land, and they're in their 80s, and so for a very long period of time, even longer period of time, these folks have been counting down the days and the years as well. But really, as far as a nation goes, the, the Israelites there, what we understand is that they have actually been waiting as a nation much, much longer than this. Because it was approximately 500 years before this that God finally, finally gave, or, or first gave a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where he let him know that he was going to make him a great people that he was going to give them the land and that he was going to bless those that would bless them and curse those who would curse them and make his name great amongst the nations. So that was a promise that he had give, given. And now we see the fulfillment of that. So you can imagine the expectation. And so it shouldn't come to any surprise that the author of Joshua, because this is such a huge event, would take up so much text of Scripture to be able to talk about this event, right? It'd be kind of bad if, if all these years, for 500 years, we were working up to this time, God constantly promising this land, and then we get one verse that says, and then they crossed the Jordan into the land. It'd be a little anticlimactic. And so what the author does is he writes... and. Two full chapters, almost three full chapters on this amazing event. And I got I to be honest with you, and, and I've never and hear any other preachers really admit this, 
but sometimes it's really hard for me to find out the authorial intent of the text. And what I mean by that is this, is what is it that God is trying to say to us from this text? A lot of people, when they preach today, it's easy for them to give you another do-better message. Well, you know, you need to be like this, and you need to be like that, and you need to do all these things. And oftentimes I sit there and go, is that really why God placed that in the text of Scripture? Is that really the meaning what he wants to get? And so after really working over this for the last several weeks, I knew this text was coming, and I'm like, dear Lord, I need to work on this. I need to know what it's all about. And you want to know what it's all about? Well, first of all, it's all about God. And it's all about what God is doing. And it's all about God working in the lives of his people. He's working in the lives of the people in the beginning of chapter 3 all the way through chapter 5. Constantly, God is at work. And I believe the reason he's at work, when you, when you see it, I believe you'll see it very clearly in the text. The reason he's doing it is because he's working on behalf of his people because he wants them to believe. That's what God is calling you to today. He's calling you to believe. You and I ultimately are sitting there going, what does God want me to do? What does God want me to do? For just a second, stop thinking about what you are to do and begin to think about what God wants you to believe. Because when our believing is right, our living will be right. And so God begins to work in their life so that they would come to a better understanding of who he is and believe all the more in God. That's what I hope that will happen in here today. That as we begin to see God work through this, we'll begin to believe all the more. And so to build our faith. But let me say this, even though we're going to see God work in this way, we do have some responsibilities. As God begins to work in our life, in order for our faith to ultimately build in him, what we need to do is we need to respond appropriately to what he's already doing inside of our life. When, when God is at work and we respond appropriately in the way that we should to what God's doing, that's when our faith, your faith and my faith, begin to build all the more in him. So what I want to do this morning with the little bit of time that we have this morning, I, 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 want, to, I want to show you, demonstrate that this passage demonstrates three ways in which we respond to God's work in our life in order for our faith to grow in him. How should we respond? What's the appropriate response to God as he's working in our life so that we can see our faith grow in him? We'll believe in him all the more. Well, there are three things. First of all, the scripture suggests that we must reposition ourselves to see God's work. We have to reposition to see our, uh, God, uh, 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 to reposition ourselves to see God's work. And we see that in the beginning of, of chapter 3. The Bible says again, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they came out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, and he and all the people of Israel lodged there before they passed over. At the end of the three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. So the chapter begins with this command. And what's interesting is this is the first time that we see mentioned the Ark of the Covenant anywhere within the book of Joshua. And when you begin to see something that isn't normally mentioned in the chapters before, and then you realize that it's actually mentioned 17 times in this chapter and the next, you understand that the author is trying to draw your attention. There's something significant with this ark. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, you remember what that is. It is basically a box, if you will, completely overlaid with gold on the inside and the outside. The lid of it was made of pure gold, solid gold. And on top were two angels, cherubim, with their, angel, with, with their wings facing outward. Now, it was precious to the people. This was the most precious physical possession of God's people during that time. But it wasn't because of gold. 
there was actually something inside that was far more precious to them than mere the value of the gold. Because inside of the Ark of the Covenant, what we found was the law. God had, 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 had written uh, uh, two tablets with his law on it. Of course, we know that Moses wrecked him and threw him down when he got mad at the people, but God made him another copy. Isn't that nice of God? And so they took that and they placed that in the Ark of the Covenant. That was there. There was also the rod of Aaron that had supernaturally during the wandering of the wilderness that budded and it began to bloom. It was a dead stick that began to bloom. It was a type or a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that would come one day. And then, of course, there was one more thing inside of that ark, and it was a jar of manna. You remember when they were in the wilderness that God was demonstrating his provision, his gracious provision for his people. And God would have these things, this like bread-type stuff that would kind of be on the ground all over the place. And people would come up and they go, hey, what is that? They go, we don't know, but that's a good name for it. That's literally what the word manna means is what is it? And so they had a jar in there to remind them of God's gracious and faithful provision to his people. Now, those things were precious, but that is not why this was the most important thing for the, Jew, for, for the Israelite people at the time. The reason that it was so significant is because of what it ultimately represented. See, what we understand is at that time is that this particular Ark of the Covenant represented the very presence of God. Where this ark was, God was. Where this ark would go, God would go. Now, you and I theologically know that God is, is omnipresent, that he's everywhere. You've heard the term, you can't put God in a box, right? Now, I don't know if it comes from there, but it certainly does relate, okay? Is that he doesn't just dwell in this box, okay? God is much bigger than that. He's, 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 he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. However, God at the same time chose of himself by his own will to connect his presence and to demonstrate his presence in an unusual, powerful presence upon that particular ark. So whenever it would go somewhere, people would know that that was where God was in a very real and powerful way. Well, we find in the next text this, uh, they begin to give more instructions in verse 4. It says, yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubics in length. And do not come near it in order that you may know that the way that you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So he tells them to, to sit back from it. Uh, 2,000 cubits is approximately 1,000 yards, which we think. And so what he says is, hey, listen, let the, let the Levites, let the, let the priests take this ark in front of you, and you guys all stand back. Now, why in the world would that be? Stand back 1,000 paces away from it. Well, here's what some scholars would suggest. They would say because of the holiness of the ark. In other words, when we see the Ark of the Covenant, you know you have this kind of contrast that you see in our relationship with God. On one hand, we understand that we have a loving God, right, church? We have a loving God, and he wants to dwell among his people, and he wants to be there. He wants to fellowship with them. But on the other aspect of God, the other attribute of God is that he's fully and completely holy, which causes a problem. Our sinfulness, God cannot be in the presence of God. Uh, of. Sin cannot exist in the presence of God because he's completely and fully holy. There's not even a shadow of sin in the Lord God. And so what we found today is this. is And today, many times that we hear preachers preach, we've elevated God's love far above his holiness, right? So now God has become this great big pansy. Yes? This great big pansy God. Thank you so much for responding. I don't know if it's the rain or whatever, but people are like, cricket, 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 cricket. Yeah. By the way, you know what my son says to me now? I told him that. He goes, how? He goes, Dad, how was it? Did they go the, all right, this morning, or did they give you the cricket, cricket, cricket this morning? 
He actually says that. So if you don't want me to say you are a bunch of cricket, 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 you need to respond. You are not cricket, cricket, okay? I have no idea where I am in the text of Scripture. That's why you should never go that way. But anyway, we elevate this aspect of God's of God love over his holiness. But the idea is we know that God is both fully loving and yet fully holy. And that's why Jesus Christ was the only one that could reconcile those two things together. And so what happens here is they say, well, the reason they need to stay away is because we see already in the wilderness wandering is that they oftentimes had to stay removed from the ark even later when the ark is in the tabernacle as well as in the temple in Jerusalem. The only one priest, the high priest, can go in once a year at the day of, uh, at the day of atonement, and that's the only day they could go in because of the holiness of God. And when he went in, he had to be com- completely cleansed. And it was only to make a sacrifice and to take that blood and put it on the top of that Ark Ark of the Covenant, which was known as the mercy seat, as propitiation and payment and satisfaction for our sins, to turn away the wrath of God. And so what happens is they sit there and they say, well, this is the main reason why they had to stay away because it was so holy. That might have been part of the reason, but the text suggests something completely different. Notice, if you will, in the next phrase, it says, Do not come near in order that you may know the way that you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So really, the reason why he's doing it is not so much because of his holiness, but rather because of his direction that he wants to give to his people. Now, remember, there's two, two and a half million people that are following this thing. All right, That is more people than in Duval, than in Nassau, than in Clay County. You put them all together, you still don't have as many people there all in a big club as as many Israelites that were sitting there wandering in the wilderness. That's a lot of people, isn't it? And so remember, all these people are saying, and so God says, I want you to follow me. And so if they were to follow, they would kind of clump up all together. And eventually what would happen is that ark would get lost in the masses of the people. And as they begin to go towards the sea, what would they do? They knew they were supposed to cross it. They would, not the sea, but the river. They would get to that river. And then what would they begin to do? They would begin to think, how in the world are we going to get over this thing? What should we do? And everybody would have all kinds of ideas, right? Some people are like, well, we could get snorkels and we can snorkel over it. And sometimes we can maybe dig a tunnel and go under it. And some people are like, maybe we can catapult people over. That would be awesome. And so they would try to do these things and they would ultimately find themselves in a state of frustration. Yes? And so what happens is he says, I want you to stay back. Because I am the only one that can lead you into a place of rest. He says, you have never been here before. You don't know the way. I alone am the way to lead you to a place of rest, me and me alone. Now, folks, doesn't this sound a little bit familiar to you for your life and for my life? Listen, you and I face all kinds of perplexities, problems, difficulties, and challenges every single day. And every single day, it seems like a new situation is coming up with our relationships with each other or our spouse or our finances or friendships or whatever it is, it seems like we, no matter how many different experiences we have, we seem like the next one seems to be a brand new situation that we've never ultimately faced. And what you and I often do is in the midst of that difficulty, we take control, right? We take control and we sit there and say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and solve this problem. So what you do and what I do is you and I go out and we get in our minds, we know what to do. So we begin to use our earthly wisdom of how to deal with this marriage, our earthly wisdom of how to deal with these finances, our, 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 our earthly knowledge of, of how we deal with whatever problem that we're ultimately facing. And most of the time, we either act or react out of fear, yes? We're fearful, so we begin to react. We just begin to do something. 
Uh, or what we do is we respond out of a fleshly desire of what our flesh desires from what this particular situation is doing. When in any case, what we do is we end up getting lost. Instead of going to God and allowing God to lead us, and instead of following God, what we ultimately do is we go out, do everything we can, and then we ask God to follow us. We turn around and say, God, here's where I am. Here's how I'm going to do this. You literally get to the point where you're ready to pull the rest of your hair out, and then you sit there and go, God, why aren't you working in my circumstances? Why aren't you blessing me? God, why aren't you following me? Here's why. God never intended to follow you. He created you to be a follower of him. And so what God ultimately says is, hey, listen, if you want to go your own way, that's fine. But I'm not going with you. You're going to go it alone. You're going to work on it alone. You're going to struggle alone. You're going to fight alone. You're going to try to make and provide your own way alone, but I'm not coming with you. Forty years before this time, we see a very clear illustration of this. Forty years before this time, you remember that God had led the people out of Egypt. Remember that? Led them out of Egypt. Supernatural power opened up the Red Sea. They passed through the Red Sea. They come to the other side. Then with a pillar of fire uh, at night and then a cloud of day, they lead and they know where to go. Why? Because they're just following God. Wouldn't that be great? What do I do? Just follow. Just follow me. Okay. Where are we going? Just follow. Okay. Just follow. Yeah, I could do that. I could just follow. All right. And finally, they get up to Kadesh Barnea. And God told, sends in the spies, and they come back, and the word of God comes through the two positive spies, and he comes back, and this is what he says. He says, God wants us to truly go in because it is truly a great land, flowing with milk and honey. We should go. But then the cold water committee shows up, the negative ones. You have them in every church. And they get up there, and they go, no, we should not go in. They're too big. They're too mighty. We shouldn't go over there. It's a terrible place to go. Let's go back. So God wants to move forward, and they want to go back. Do you see what the situation is? They see the challenge before them, and they decide, I know better than God. So what we'll do, here's the great plan. My great plan is we'll go back into the very bondage that God had already saved us out of. That sounds like a great plan. Well, this is what happens in Numbers chapter 14. At this particular point, God begins to judge the people. He wants to wipe them out. Moses comes before them, begs them to show mercy to his people on account of his name amongst the nations. And God says, okay, I will, but here's the deal. These folks that did not believe, 20 years and older, we're going to wander around for 40 years in the wilderness, around the dirt and the dust. You're not going anywhere. You're just going to go in circles. And he goes, until every single one of them die out, and when the last person dies out, we'll go ahead and we'll try this baby again. And so that's what they do. They go off and they, they, they die off. But before that, remember what happens. The people are like, well, I don't like that plan either. That sounds terrible. So what we'll do is, okay, God, uh, we're ready now. We're ready to, to move forward. And so what they do is the Bible in, 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 in Numbers chapter 14 says that they get everybody together and they say, let's go fight. But Moses, excuse me, Moses at this time warns them. He says, whoa, 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 it doesn't work that way. God was ready to go. You went the other way. You went and did your own thing. He goes, he goes, now God wants to go back the way you want to go, and now you're going the opposite way. This isn't going to work. And so this is what ultimately happens in the text in, in Numbers chapter 14, verses 41 through 43. He says, do, this, is, this is Moses talking to the people. Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there are the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned your back from following the Lord. And listen, the Lord will not be with you. I don't know about you, but there's nothing more discouraging than the thought that God is not with me. 
But see, that's what happens oftentimes. The reason that God was, look, the Bible, we understand, he says that I will never leave you nor forsake you, right? Hebrews chapter 13, 5, which is a quote from Joshua chapter 1. And so what we understand is this, he says, I will never leave for you, forsake you. So as a believer in Jesus Christ, there is the essence that his spirit will never leave us, ever. He is sealed us until the day of redemption, okay? But there is another sense in which he manifests his presence in our life and in our circumstances. And when you and I are impatient for God, and we decide that we're going to take and handle this difficulty on our own without any recognition of God or any desire to do what it is the way that God wants it to do. But we begin to work and we begin to move according to the flesh, our only fleshly desires and fears and what we think is best according to our carnal mind. That's when we end up getting in trouble. And then once again, we turn and say, God, where are you? And God says, I'm not where you are. The reason that God is not with you in the midst of that is because if he were with you, he would provide a way for you, and he's not going to provide a way for you because the direction that you're going leads to destruction. And so what he says is he says, hey, do you want to know how we know that God is with us? See, the word know here is, is present several times. He says that you will know uh, where you should go. And then in verse 7, he talks about the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of, uh, of Israel, that they may know that I was with Moses so that I will be with you. Again in verse 10, and Joshua said, here, uh, uh, here is how you will know that the living God is among you. You want to hear how you can know that God is with you in the midst of the circumstances in which you're in? The way that you can know that God is with you is if you're with God. If you're following God, if you're submitting to God, here's the deal. There's some people right here that are struggling with their marriage, and you're doing everything you can that you think is right, and the whole thing is falling apart. And you are frustrated because you can't understand why you can't see the work of God inside of your life. And the reason is because you're trying to handle it, and you're not submitting yourself to God. Here's how you need to submit to God. You go back to his word. That's what they were following, God's presence, but the law was in it. You go back to God's word and you submit to his word. That's how you follow him. You go back, men, and right now, instead of sitting there and saying, well, that's fine, I'll leave my wife, I'll go and find somebody else. Instead of doing that, to get your marriage, to see God truly work inside your marriage, what you do is you go back and you say, what God's really telling me to do, the way to follow him and to have him work on my behalf is for me to learn to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. Everything is falling apart. God, I've tried everything. The one thing you haven't tried is following God. You go back and you begin to sit there. We worry about all the things that we have absolutely no control over. What you have control over is what the word of God has already told you to do. Love her as Christ has loved the church and gave himself for her. Wife, submit yourself as the church submits themselves to God, to Jesus Christ. You start working on that and this is what God does. He steps into your situation, he makes a way, and he begins to work because he knows that you are following him. He fights the battle on your behalf. He makes a way where there is no way, and his ultimate will is done, and he is glorified. See, you're trying to think, how do I figure all this out? It's not your job to figure it out. It's your job to follow God. And when you do that and you see him work in your life, when you see him work in your life, that's when your faith begins to grow in him, does it not? But what we have to do is just like they had to do. They had to reposition themselves. Instead of trying to lead God, they had to become followers of God. That's how our faith begins to grow. Secondly, this, not only do we reposition ourselves to see God's work, secondly, we must recognize the power of God's work. 
Recognize the power of God's word. Now look at verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all, all Israel, that they may know that I was with Moses, so that I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the ark of the covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Now notice what Joshua does in verse 9. And Joshua said to the people, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Do you know that this is a great example of what preaching is? Side note here. As a man of God knowing the word of God and relating it as accurately as he possibly can to the people of God. That's what the preaching of God is. And that's what he's doing. God said, I want you to tell this to the people. He turns and he speaks exactly what it is that God wants them to say. And what is it that God wants them to say? Look at verse 10. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know the living God is among you, and that he will, he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. Now this is still all instruction. This is all instruction that God has given Joshua. Now he's giving it to the people. Last bit of instruction, verse 13. And when the soles of the feet of the priests, bearing the ark of the Lord and the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Now notice the order of what God is telling them to do. He says, priests, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take the ark. I want you to pick it up. I want the people to follow me. But I want you to go and step into the water. Step into the water. Once you step into the water, then I'm going to shut up that river. Did you notice that? Now, I don't know these guys, and this is, this is not biblical, but this is, I'm just trying to use my sanctified imagining. If it was me that was there, I would hope he would reverse that. If there's a raging river, what I'd really like is, hey, God, why don't you stop that thing up, and then I'll step into the river. Yes? Isn't that very similar to how we live our life of faith? And the truth is, it's not a life of faith at all. Look, let's give just a very clear example because I think it's one of the greatest examples that people deal with when I'm counseling with them. This is what they deal with. Man, I'm really struggling with giving my tithe to God. You are? Why? Well, just because I've got all these bills. Do you see this river of bills before me? I'm like, yes, I see the river of bills before you. If God would just put this away, then I could tithe. If he would just put it away, then I would believe in him. And each and every time I just sit back and say, no, you wouldn't. There were people that followed Jesus all the time because of his great works. And they said, wow, that was a great work, but show us something even greater. If you show us something greater, then we'll really believe. He would do something greater, and they would never believe. They would just keep asking for the next big miracle. See, the Christian life is not led and lived by sight. It's lived by faith. See, we don't demand God to allow us to see so that we believe. We believe so that we might see. So that we could see God for who he is and we could see God for what he's doing and we could see God working inside of our life. And right now you're sitting there going, I, I, there's a part of me that I know you want me to do this, God. I know you want me to do this, but why don't you just do something first? He goes, just trust me. And you can never trust by saying, I trust. Your demonstration of your faith and trust is always demonstrated with actions. Go and read the book of James, the whole point. Faith without works is dead. So wherever you are right now, you need to step out in faith. Then you get to see God work, not before. Now, fortunately for these folks, they did live by faith and not by sight. 
In verse 14, it says, So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped into the brink of the water. Then he gives a side note there. We'll come back to that. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a, in a heap very far away at Adam, the city besides Zerathin. And those flowing down from the Sea of uh, Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Guys, understand, this is big stuff, okay? This is no like little measly deal. This is God at his best. God in his glory. God demonstrating his power. Understand what happens here. This is no measly babbling brook. All right, this is not the people gathering together, picking up and not wanting to get their skirts wet and tipping through things, all right? This is a rushing river. Did you notice what happened when he sits there and he says, it's kind of a side note, sidebar in verse 15, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. Do you know when all the times God decides that he wants them to go over is the most difficult time of the year? It's when, it's when the river goes from 20 yards wide to 200 yards wide to a mile wide. And twice as deep. It's during the floodplain when everything, why does God do that? God, why can't you just do something simple? God loves to brag and show off about himself. What he does is oftentimes, I know we sit there, it's impossible, perfect. You're a candidate for the working of God in your life. Well, it's not bad enough. It's not real bad yet. Huh. Well, then God's probably not going to work. Let it get really bad. Then you need to get fired up. It's not a time of despair. It's time of worship and a demonstration of God's power and what he ultimately wants to do. Listen, and I don't know how he does what he does. All we know is that it's truly and fully God him closing this river up. Hey, look, the way I read it and the way I would like to think about it, uh, well, let, let me say how some people say he could have done it any way that he wanted. This says that it came and it stood up in a, in a heap. It, it could have been that, as has happened three times in the last century and a half, what could have happened is that there could have been a landslide. There could have been, a, uh, there could have been an earthquake which caused there to be a lack of flow inside of the water. Uh, it, whatever the case, if God did it that way or some other way, let me tell you the other way I think it happened. I think it looked like a huge aquarium. Isn't that cool? Just like in the movies, right? That it was like this big piece of glass that just, whew, like that. And all of a sudden it was just, it's building up. And as all two and a half million people are walking by, they're like, check that fish out, dude. That's awesome. The redneck guys plopping over their fishing pole, you know, trying to do their thing. And they're like, this is awesome. I don't know how God does it. I would love to think that here's the keys. But the point is not how did God do it. The point is God did it. Because it stopped the moment that the priest put their foot in and it began again, the last foot out, it immediately began to flow as a mighty river once again. God did it. Why? Why does God show off like this? I think the answer is found in verse 10. It says, and Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Last time I have to read it today, praise Jesus. What is he ultimately saying? He's saying, the reason I'm doing this is so that you know that I can do that. 
I'm going to do what is physically absolutely impossible, and there's no way that you knowing that an act of God was able to overcome and divert and to stop up this particular river. I'm doing it for your own good so that when you come into the land and you begin to fight, there is no doubt in your mind that, my, that your God can, that he is powerful. It's an argument from greater to lesser. If God can do this, he can certainly do this. What did he want them to do? He wanted them to recognize his power, to see how great of a God this is. Many, many years before, 40 years before, they had the same exact opportunity. The same exact, uh, uh, same exact opportunity occurred again. And this was, do you remember the Red Sea when it parted? They come up and they're like, man, Moses, why'd you leave us out here? We're going to die. You and I would have been bellyaching the same way, right? I'm a pretty good swimmer. I probably would have tried to swim that bad boy if I saw them coming, right? Let's get out of here, right? And so I would do everything I can, but instead God comes in his power and he separates it. He separates it. They walk through. And when the, when the, when the idiot Pharaoh followers army comes and they get in it, what does it do? It just washes them away. The last person out, all of a sudden it just completely crashes. What was God doing? God was going, I want to show you my power so that when you go into the promised land and you see, quote, those giants that you know, if I did this, I can certainly do this. But you know what? They didn't recognize his power. And here God's trying to do it again. He's trying to get them to see what a mighty God he actually is. You know, here's the deal. Paul uses very similar vocabulary from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 32. He says there, it says there, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's an argument from greater to lesser. He says, if Jesus Christ, if God, through his son Jesus Christ, had the power to overcome and have victory over death and sin. And he was willing to do it to the magnitude of sending his own son. What would his father ever keep from doing from you? If he can put away death and sin, what is it that he can't do in your life? It's an argument from greater to lesser. The problem for you guys today and the problem for me today is not that we need a bigger God. The problem is that our view of God is way too small. It's way too wimpy. This is what Dale Ralph Davis said. The object of this text then is to impress us with the adequacy of God. To grill into us that God is not merely a three-letter word of our Christian jargon. Not merely the honorary leader of our club. But is the living God who works and intervenes and he comes and he saves and he rescues and he counsels his people in all their perplexities. He is indeed the Lord of all the earth. Not a mere little league deity. So we must renounce our tendency to, purify, to punify God, to carve him down into, into our stature and limit him to our possibilities. Your God, when he died upon that cross and saved you and broke the bonds of sin and death from you, was demonstrating that there is nothing that he cannot do for you. And what I want to do is I want to just correct something very, very quickly. Because I understand that you might have cancer. And I understand that you might be, your spouse might be divorcing you right now. And I understand that you might be losing your home. And do not for a second to think that me saying that God has the power is automatically you go home and use him like a lucky rabbit's foot and say, I know God can, I know God can, I know God can, and then just sit there and then be completely destroyed if he does not. 
I know two things. God can either radically and immediately remove you out of the situations you can cure your cancer, immediately change the heart of your loved one, immediately be able to bring you into money to be able to save your home, or he can dem- his, demonstrate his amazing power by sustaining you through the most great and greatest difficulties of your life. And may I suggest this? You and I are so corrupt in heart that God may have no other way but to lead us through it rather than rescuing us from it. Because by leading us through it, we would appreciate him all the more, love him all the more, depend on him all the more. He would be all more sufficient to us, all more loving to us. Our affections would overflow for who he is and what he has done. Because I might lose everything else, but the one I have not lost is him. He's powerful. That's the kind of powerful God that he is. And when we understand that power, our faith grows in him all the more. Yes? Here's the third thing third way that we need to respond to the work in our life in order for our faith to grow is this we must re- we must we must remember we must remember the goodness of God's work that's when we ch- find in chapter 4 I'll hurry very quickly let's look at the story again this is when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan the Lord said to Joshua take 12 men from the people from each tribe a man and command them saying take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan from the very place where the priests set uh, uh, feet stood firmly and bring them over to you and lay them down in the place where you lodged tonight. So here's the instructions. You remember where you guys were and it was dry and you saw those big stones inside of the river? This is what I want you to do. I want you to eat one guy from each tribe to go over and grab one of these massive stones and bring it over. And what he's going to call them to do is to use them and in, form them into a monument into a monument. Now notice what he says in verse 4. He says, Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he has appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you the stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of tribes and the people of Israel. And then he says this. He begins to tell us why. That this may be a sign among you. Why did they need a sign? They needed a sign of remembrance. Because one of the greatest enemies against our faith in God is forgetfulness. The reason that you and I run around like chickens with our head cut off every time something happens is because we have a short-term memory of God's power and goodness. God can... I've never seen myself be so long in calling for God to do something supernatural in my life and bellyache and cry out and lay down and have spasms and fight and do everything else. Finally, God does it. Does it. That's nice. He does it. And then, he, he, yeah, that's right. He finally does it. What do you think about that? And then literally a minute and a half later, um, for a minute and a half, I'm joyful. I didn't say thankful, but joyful. Hey, great. Isn't that awesome? It's such a great thing. Just long enough for me to forget about his goodness and his power and his might, for me to look at the next thing and go, God, why are you making me go through this? You know, one of the biggest problems even in marriages, again, I don't mean to be preaching on marriage, but one of the biggest marriages today is not infidelity. It's forgetfulness. It's forgetfulness of the vows that you made. It's forgetfulness of the goodness of that person. It's forgetfulness of all that they've done and the love that they've demonstrated with you. Look, you're in a marriage, and if you forget about all those things and the preciousness of the one that you're with, you will draw away in your affections for that person. It's the same thing with our God. 
Now notice he gives us a couple reasons why we need to be able to remember. And he says here, he says, you're going to remember here at verse, first, in verse 6, he says that this may be a sign among you. So the people themselves that are going this, it was a sign for. It stood as a reminder to themselves. Why? Because of just what I said. Because they're about to face more, di- even, uh, more things when they get into this thing, and they're going to have to go back and remember, hey, look, the God that did this can take care of this. It was for them, so that the people that experienced it wouldn't forget. The second reason is found in the latter part of verse 6, and is this, it stood as a tool to teach their children. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So he said, you know what? The reason you're going to put these stones up is not only so you can remember, but so that when your kid sees these things, they can sit there and say, Daddy, what is that? And you turn around and go, man, let me tell you about God. And you begin to brag on God. See, our kids, unfortunately, see us complaining to God but never remembering what God has already done and the goodness of God. So where they learn that God is the cosmic Santa Claus rather than God and provider of all is through mommy and daddy. Because we don't remember, we don't remind them enough to sit there and go, God is good. God is good. The third remembrance was this, it stood as a witness to a lost world. We find this back in verse 23 and 24. He says, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. The memorial was a statement and a witness to a lost and dying world that our God is good, is good. You know, as I started going through this stuff, you know, I started thinking about the wall. The first thing that came to my mind for you guys that were here last week was, you remember Uncle George's wall last week? Remember Uncle George's wall? And, uh, and he sat there and he says, hey, you know, you know, we're trying to build this wall. And man, praise God what they're doing. They're building a church in Jerusalem. What an incredible thing. The, really one of the only Christian churches in, of that nature, Baptist churches there. And, and so he's calling for this thing. There was just one thing I wish he had changed, and I love him, and, and, and I'll probably talk to him about this, is, is he says, if you give, we'll, we'll get a brick and we'll put your name on it. I went from wanting to give to sitting there and going, oh. Did you feel that way at all? I sat there going, the last thing I want is my name on it. No name on it. I just want to see a wall and sit there and glorify God and look at the goodness of God. Not a reminder of you or I or to be God's stealers. And things. You know, I grew up in a church. Praise God for my heritage. Praise God for the tradition. Praise God for so many of those things. I, I'm, I'm indebted to them. But if I saw one more plaque on one more pew, a one more plaque on one more stained glass window that said from Billy Bob Joe and his, and his wife Martha who made this possible... All I do is look in the church and go, look what everyone has done apart from God. I just want to sit there and say, look what God has done. God is so good. So I started thinking to myself, should we, how can we go about to build a monument that could do all of these things? And I thought, because I'm so handsome, you could make a, a picture of me out of granite and I could stand out in the parking lot and all these things would happen. We'd all be reminded of the goodness of God by seeing me. Wouldn't that be awesome? No. (laughs) Let's be honest. Well, how do we then have a memorial for the goodness of God? 
I think we kind of do it in some subtle ways that we forget, but I think they're very important ways, and we need to bring back the meaning of it. I think one of the first ways we memorialize his goodness is through observing the Lord's Supper. And as we sit there and as it passes around and some of your kids are in here, they sit there and they go, Mommy and Daddy, why aren't I allowed to take of the Lord's Supper? Why aren't I allowed to take that? What, what is that whole thing all about? We turn to them and we begin to share with them the greatest good that God has ever blessed us with. The sending of his son to Calvary to die for sinners that those who would repent of their sins and place their faith in him fully and completely would be made right in God and can have an eternal relationship with him. The wrath of God would be appeased. And now God would look at us as the righteousness of his son. So one way that we memorialize is, is through the Lord's Supper. Another way that we do it is kind of, is, is again through giving. And I remember my dad, and one of the things he was so good at is writing his tie check out. Now, I'd, I'd kind of do that differently, but one of the things he would always do is he'd write his tie check each and every week, which I think is really cool. And then he would write it the very first week, and then he'd put it right there on the table where we had, you know, you know, you know those things where it had the salt and pepper shakers and all the whatever. It, he'd whip it right kind of in there, right? And so it would, all, it, every single week we knew that it was there. And as kids, we used to marvel. You know, because 10 bucks to a kid is like all the money in the world, right? And I remember looking at that tie check going, man, dad's just blowing his money. Does he have any idea how many Legos that that thing would buy? And I mean, we would just sit there and drool. But he would sit there and I'd say, and we would even try to talk him out of it because, of course, as a kid who had not come to taste the grace and the mercy of God, I sat there and said, Dad, I could come up with some better uses of this. Let me tell you what I do. Why in the world, Dad? And, of course, you know, why in the world would you do that? And he says, are you, are you praying that God would give you more money? He says, no, son. He says, I don't give in order to be able to get. I give because God has already given me out of his goodness. This is just a remembrance for me and a remembrance for you guys each and every week that God is good. And I think the last way, and I think maybe this is the worst time to really talk about it on a rainy day when it was hard to get out of bed, but I think really the attendance and just being in the house of God with God's people. Now let me explain something very quickly. I understand it's a contemporary church. We wear whatever we want, man. It's nice. Which you cannot wear whatever you want. Okay, let's make that just perfectly straight. All right. But the point is about the dress is it's just not that important. It's just not that significant. Whether you wear a suit or whether you wear, some, some people wear a suit, whatever, it, it's okay. We're just not going to make a big deal about that. We want to make a big deal about the person of Jesus Christ. And here's the deal. We don't want to make a big deal that we're so cool that we can be casual. Because that people do that the other way. And I want to pinch their head off. It drives me nuts. <laughs> Either way, God doesn't get the glory. And so what we ultimately do is it's just about being here. And what I think it does is, every time that I get up, and do you know sometimes I don't want to come here? Am I allowed to say that? Sometimes I'm just sitting there going, God, it just so, feels so good in this bed. Five o'clock in the morning, God, it just feels so good in this bed. God, I don't want to get out. Those people are so mean down there. <laughs> and so I'll get up and I'll come. But every time, shower off, wake up, and even in my tiredness as I come, every time I get up, I'm reminded of the goodness of God. And I think with our children, as they're sitting there and as they grow older, it's harder to get them out of bed. And they're sitting there, can't we skip? No. Why do we have to go? And it's like, we're going to have all kinds of reasons. Some people are going to say, we're, we're going to go because it's the right thing to do and people will talk about us if we don't go. Or we're going to go because it will make sure that you're a good kid. Or we're going to go because it will make sure that we never struggle with our finances. No, 
We're going to go because God is good. That's why we go. And as we're sitting there, we look around as being a witness to the lost and dying world. Look, man, I got to admit, it just looks really cool. Those big boats look so cool. As they're all geared up and they're all loaded up. And, and I'm driving the opposite way and they're all going out. Man, they look so cool. Don't they look cool? And my next door neighbors and all that they're doing. And, and I sit there. And when people just sit there and say, hey, you want to come fishing with us? And you sit there and say, no. Man, there's a part of me that would kind of like to, man. But I can't. Why? Because you have to. You feel like you're not going to be saved or a good Christian. Or you feel like you're going to be holier than me if you go to church. No. I just can't because God is so good. He's just so good. You know, guys, this morning, if you want to know what God is about, it's not about you bettering yourself. It's about you believing more. And God is working in your life, and he's doing a great deal of things that you may not see because you're on the right wrong path. And what you have to do is you have to become a follower of him. And when you do, your faith will begin to build because of his work inside of your life. And I want to let you know today that for many of you at the same time, is God is great and he's big and he's huge and he's an all-powerful God. And there's nothing that he cannot do. And you've got to sit there and you've got to be gripped by that truth. You've got to let it resonate inside of your heart. And when you do and when you reflect on it and reflect on the scriptures, meditate on it day and night, when you are coming up in the most difficult time in your life, your faith begins to build all the more. And finally, you just have to remember his goodness. Don't forget. He's brought you this far. He will continue the good work in you that he has started until the day of Jesus Christ. So today, here it is. Do you believe? Do you believe? If you want to know how to be saved, I'm going to be standing down here. would love to share with you what the gospel and how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. How your sins, listen to this, how your sins can be completely forgiven and you can be made right before God. Doesn't that sound amazing? The altar is going to be open. Maybe some of us just need to sit there and we need to repent. Some of us need to repent from where we are and begin to trust him all the more. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. Adam is coming at this time, and we're just going to pray. And then would you respond? Do what God is calling you to do inside of your life. Jesus, we come right now. God, there may be some who are lost that do not know you. We know that there are. God, I pray that they would come that they would come, that your Holy Spirit would move them, draw them, those you recall, that you would draw, God, right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, they'd be saved. And for all those who are in here, God, that are struggling in faith, God, none of us in here, our faith is as strong as it needs to be. So we need to do business with you. God, may we believe more in you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you guys respond as we sing this morning?